Welcome to What's Next, Living Longer, Better, Smarter. This episode, A Strong Voice and a Strong Mind, is made possible by Posit Science, maker of Brain HQ, brain training that works, backed by science. I'm Fred Fishkin, along with Mary Furlong. Hi, Mary. Hi, Fred. I think we have another great podcast in store for everyone. A very exciting day. It sure is. Uh, we'll be hearing a bit later on about a new study providing more evidence on the benefits of brain training. But first, we want to welcome Grammy Award-winning music producer and a field recording trailblazer, Ian Brennan. Hi, Ian. Hi. Hello. Hi, Fred. Hi, Mary. Ian, you've just done some amazing work, and you're here today with us from Italy. How exciting. So we're so happy to have you on the podcast and can't wait to hear about your work. How could we not invite you to be with us when you're out with an album titled The Oldest Voice in the World? As <laughs> done, uh, thanking you, thank you for, for bringing me back to the sky. That's part of the title. Tell us about this album and this project that really took you across the globe. Well, my wife and I, Marilena Umahozadeli, who does all the photography and uh, film video for the projects, uh, went to Azerbaijan, to the Talish Mountains, to record with the, the Talish community there who speak uh, the Talish language, which is considered a potentially endangered language with less than 200,000 speakers. And they are uh, a minority population, both within Azerbaijan and also on the other side of the border uh, within I Iran. But in the in the Talish region on the Azerbaijan side, uh, reportedly was the oldest man that is recorded to have lived, who uh, supposedly made it to age 168. They've had other people that um, ha have seemingly made it to age 145 and 150. Um, and they're very proud of having centenarians, but not only centenarians, but super centenarians, people that have made it well past 100. So we went there in search of th these communities and uh, to hear from them and to give voice to them, hopefully um, offering a platform. What we found, unfortunately, after COVID is that many of them had passed away in those recent months. We went there right after the reopening. Um, and uh, but, but nonetheless, there were many folks there and, and uh, they offered up their stories and voices and it was incredibly moving and, and educational and unforgettable. Wow, I have a colleague, an investor friend, who's written a book about how to live to be 100. Um, but those ages are just astounding. Yes, they are. Um, I, well, you know, I, I, when we look at, uh, you know, the, the inequity globally still to this day, we just came from Namibia, where for men, the, the, the life expectancy remains about 62. Um, and in some communities, far less, some of the, again, minoritized communities. Uh, to make it to any age is, is quite remarkable, really, and to make it to 100 is, is incredible, no matter where you are in the world. And we asked them uh, what the secrets were. You know, it, I, I think it's nice to hear from them, not that they're necessarily right, but there must be something to it. And uh, the funny thing there was that the most frequent advice was eat lots of butter. Um, wow. Yeah. So oh, they're talking cool. about a different kind of butter than we eat. <laughs> they're talking about fresh from the cow, more like cheese, probably. And, and uh, you know, but uh, but that was very surprising advice, to say the least. Was there a big sense of community among them? 
Well, you know, the the villages are are quite isolated, so it's it's like a lot of places where the map is not the road. Um, it dead ends. The main road is a two lane winding road, and it dead ends into a town. And then from there are these villages of what they are oftentimes termed are the long livers, um, and most of them are are high up in different mountain valleys or or you know almost on peaks. Um, and so they're quite separated from each other, you know, as a bird flies, no, but, but otherwise, yes. So, and, and given th that it was winter and nearing winter, um, it's very muddy, it's very icy, it's very snowy. Uh, the mud tends to be the thing that makes it very, very difficult to reach these places uh, by motorized vehicle. It's much easier, takes longer, but, but, you know, much safer really ultimately to do it on foot or to do it with, with uh, donkeys. They use a lot of donkeys there. I mean, we've heard this kind of thing before, you know, at the blue zones and people living in mountainous regions, and it's that kind of physical activity maybe that can contribute to that that, uh, that super longevity, right? Well, certainly there there there's a lot of factors, maybe you know, intersection intersecting with one another or you know, compounding one another and positive, but. Um, Hard work is a big part of it um, for many of the individuals. You know, one man is a shepherd, so he was out walking, you know, walking not just on the level surface, but up and down and, and at a high elevation. And so the, the air there is certainly pure, um, meaning there aren't any notable sources of pollution nearby. And uh, the water is is reportedly very, very, very clean. And they also use a lot of herbs that are indigenous. So some of them might have corresponding, uh, you know, species in, in other places, but some of them are, are unique to that area. And, and they use those in, in tea and, and otherwise. And so some people claim that was part of, the, part of the great longevity that's found there. Let's take a look at this little video clip. Basma basma taglar saraldi yapar Basma basma taglar saraldi yapar Just terrific, Ian. And this whole project was done in the midst of COVID. So tell us about the process here, where and how you captured the voices and and, and the challenges that you faced here. Well, I mean, the biggest challenge would probably be there uh, regardless. And that is, again, the roads is just access. Um, and also the language barrier. We were traveling with a man who comes from the Talish community and, and speaks Talish, and he's from the valley below, which again, seems nearby. It's about an hour's drive or more up uh, the road, even though it's not that many miles. Uh, but, you know, he hadn't been up there a lot. And then when you go from where the road dead ends, which is a bit of a hub, to these smaller villages, uh, he found that he could only understand 
somewhere between 70 to 80% of what was being said. So they were speaking a different dialect um, and in some ways a different language. So, you know, that was a little bit of an obstacle as well. But we faced a lot, what all of us faced during that period, which was just a lot of rules and restrictions and extra hoops to jump through, um, which in this case were were very advisable, which was, you know, being tested before we left, being tested when we got there, being tested before we left, being tested when we got home. You know, these were, were requirements on, on, on both ends of the trip and uh, and wearing masks, obviously, uh, you know, throughout. Tell us about the the texture of the singing. I think that's the, the phrase that you used here. But I believe it maybe even took you by surprise. Yeah, I mean, there's a depth, there's a nuance, there's a texture. We're I'm very interested in sounds that that are unique. Meaning, if I, objectively, whether I like it or not, is not really as meaningful as whether it's something that doesn't sound like something I've heard before, because we have such a huge amount of, of content being released, but it's so repetitive. You, you hear a lot of the same sounds, you hear a lot of the same voices, the same styles, the same you know storylines. Um, so to hear a voice or any other sound musically that, that is unique, truly unique, uh, is, is something that has to be valuable if we truly value diversity. And what occurred with a lot of these individuals is that there's, you know, a built-in distortion that's occurred over time. You know, there's a depth there. Um, so on a few occasions, I had to take off the headphones and listen and make sure, you know, that it wasn't the equipment, that I was doing something wrong. Not that it was bad, but just making sure that, okay, that's their pure tone. Um, but I'm extremely interested in how the voice ages and matures. Um, uh, there's a big difference between having a good voice and being a good singer. Um, and a lot of my favorite singers became better as they aged as singers, even though their voice became less pristine. So people like Frank Sinatra and Willie Nelson and Nina Simone to some degree. And these are, you know, Merle Haggard. These are people that I feel became better, more soulful singers as they aged. And we're talking about in their 50s and 60s and maybe their early 70s and not over 100 years old. Um, so this is really uncharted territory when it comes to recording. Yeah, that's very interesting. So tell us what you're hoping the audience for this wonderful work will come away with. Um, well, what, what is your motivation? Well, hopefully they come away with just greater empathy and, and understanding of themselves in the world. That's, that's I think, the, the higher calling of art is the intimacy and the fact that it can help us literally to walk in someone else's shoes. We talk about that a lot, but in this case, to, to hear them, you know, to literally have, you know, have earphones on and, and be hearing this individual communicating in an intimate way. And that's really the greatest miracle of the microphone is not to amplify the, the loud voices, but the fact that it allows the quietest voices to be heard. Was this a form of generational storytelling? set in, in music is that is that what's going on well to a large degree sure they're sharing their stories and one of the themes that came up often and was quite poignant and i think quite revealing uh was how many of them chose to talk about their their mothers and how much they miss their mothers and the loss of their mothers um, it, 
of something that has stayed with them and stays with them and will for the remainder of their days, undoubtedly. Um, some of them also spoke of the loss of sons and grandsons. One one woman had lost a grandson and, and to war. Um, and, uh, you know, it's very it's very profound, you know, that that uh, this idea that we have sometimes in Western culture to get over things and and that that it's linear, you know, that you're going to feel better after a week than a day and a month after a week and a year after two months um, is really false. It's it's more complex than that. It's an ongoing process. And big loss is something that uh, can strengthen us, but it's something that stays with us as well, cyclically. I like the use of the word intimacy. So I was reading recently that if you read a lot, the stories of people you read, then you create these intimacies in, that you have in their lives. And I think the older you get, you're searching for authenticity and connection and intimacy. But let's talk about your early work in the 90s. You've taught about violence prevention at several universities. You have a very unique background. So tell us more about that. Well, you know, I was, uh, you know, a working class suburban kid. Um, I was obsessed with music from the time I was five years old. I, I didn't go to college. Um, I had to start working to support myself. And the only thing that interested me other than music was social work. And I feel like music at its best is social work. So I started working for minimum wage uh, in hospitals, uh, changing diapers on night shifts, and uh, and then working in psychiatric facilities, first with teenagers, uh, then with the elderly, and then ultimately in the emergency room. And that led to people asking me to train other people in conflict resolution because it was something that I was was good at. I'm, I was better at it then than I am now. You know, I was more patient as a younger person than I am now. Um, I'm still pretty patient, but not as patient as I was then. And uh, so I started teaching and somewhat begrudgingly. Uh, and then I and then, uh, you know, somebody I was teaching for uh, said, hey, you know, I want you to come to the jail I work at and teach there. And I was like, ah, oh, no, nah, you know, because I didn't want to do that all the time. But I went and did it. And then somebody there was the head of the county mental health and said, hey, we just had a an attack with, you know, somebody came in with a knife and 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 tried to attack somebody. Fortunately, nobody was harmed, but this scared everyone. So we need to train people and we want you to do that. And and I was like, ah, but then I did. And then that led to more. And so it went from once, once a, a, a month to once a week to twice a week to five times a week. And now I've been doing it for 30 years and I've written eight related books on the topic. And um, it's something I still do that helps fund these projects that are money losing labors of love. I like the themes that you choose. And, you know, when you are a vulnerable person, as you know, people are when they are in assisted living or memory care or prison and different places, you know, having someone who's empathetic, who wants to be there to help them, and who can approach it with that sense of humanity is so important, I think. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, I think that people uh, need attention and, and deserve attention, and yet people's attentions are so divided and distracted, but at the same time concentrated. You know, every move by certain celebrities is reported on. Here in Italy today, I was walking by a newsstand, and there was a German newspaper for sale, and the headline, I could make it out in German, what, you know, it was a picture of Leonardo DiCaprio and it said, 
Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio reunites with his German cousin. And I'm like, it was front page news. I'm like, that's front page news. You know, like, like, I mean, that's repetition that it's, it's not, it's anti-diversity really. And yet we have folks that, that often have great wisdom to share. And sometimes they're maligned, as you mentioned, the, 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 the people that have been in prison, but these are individuals that in many cases have had years and decades, uh, nearly lifetimes to think about their, their error, which oftentimes occurred in seconds or minutes under the influence of, of, of alcohol or other stimulants. And that's not to, to forget, forgive or be political about, about their action. It's just to say that they often possess great wisdom. They've, they've, they've worked hard at, at changing and oftentimes have um, and have a deeper relationship to peace even though their history might be one that's labeled violent. You know, Fred, you probably don't know that I've written several books about the law when I was young in my career, but I did do work with um, teaching people about their rights and also um, about ex-offenders. And But I never made the correlation of the vulnerability of people. And when when I see people that are caregivers, which is the number one job need today, there are 40, you know, millions of job openings in hospitals and healthcare communities where we need empathy, empathetic staff. And you're kind of a gift in that world uh, that you went in at when you were young because training people to be empathetic as they go into these careers, there's just so much job change. It's, it's a challenge. Yeah, the system itself is uh, very trying, I think, for for both ends, you know, for the mm-hmm. staff and, and for the people that are providing care and the individuals who do it successfully, despite the odds, so to speak, are are truly the unsung heroes that they, they should be on the front. They should be on the front page of newspapers. Yes, exactly. not, not not not, you know, Internet stars and, and people that have done horrible things, but in some cases, but instead there should be more room for for these stories, the, the quieter stories that are really more reflective of, of humanity, meaning the average individual has nothing but good intentions. They may not fulfill them, but they certainly uh, would like to, to make the world a better place. I would wonder if uh, your conflict resolution skills uh, were useful at all in, 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 in your travels in places and when there are perhaps misunderstandings sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I I, th- I think probably um, it, it's fairly second nature for me. To, to, uh, so it's hard to say to what degree. I, I'm sure it's played a role, um, maybe more than anything, just in terms of proportions that that uh, things that might appear to be a crisis and people might react to and it might help to escalate a situation uh, instead for me seem fairly normal. I mean, when we went to Zomba prison in Malawi, um, which at the time was the poorest country in the world and, and remains one of the poorest countries in the world. Um, we'd been there before and we'd recorded the Malawi Mouse Boys, who are an incredible group that have been singing together since they were children and just some of the greatest harmony singers you could ever hear. And when we went back to Zamba Prison, we didn't know whether there would be music there. We took the leap of faith. We believe that there are 2,000 plus people living in a prison that's designed to hold 300 people. Um, that's over 100 years old and is crumbling, they must have something to share. And we went there. And what I felt 
was not at all foreignness uh, when we first met with them and, and play and they were playing music with us. I, I felt familiarity. It felt like, oh, this this is the milieu that I'm accustomed to, you know, being around folks that, you know, may, maybe in some ways are, are behaviorally a, a little different than the average person, maybe more aggressive or or might have, you know, certain behaviors that might be off-putting to others. But I found it, you know, quite comforting in a way. You know, I was like, oh, this feels like home, even though I was, you know, thousands and thousands of miles away on a different continent. And these, as you've said, are really labors of love for you. It's not a necessarily a, a money-making venture that, that you undertake here. So now do you get to sit back at all, or are you already planning your next venture? Uh, we, we, we're doing it while we can, you know, we, we, uh, you know, I, I've been saying for many years that we don't know how long we can continue. Um, and I'm actually surprised we've been able to for this long. Uh, one of the things is that it, it's more difficult to get support uh, for these voices than it was previously. Um, a lot has changed. Things have become even more celebrity driven as we've already talked about. Um, but we will continue for as long as we can, you know, physically uh, and financially. And yeah, we have we have quite a few things going, uh, you know, as we speak. Uh, we're, we we just got back from a, a, a recording trip that was very very difficult in terms of travel, but very very rewarding um, in an extremely isolated place. Um, and uh, but beautiful, you know, beautiful place and, and incredible voices. And we are hoping to do another trip trip this summer. And we have you know a record coming out in June from. Uh, the Ta uh, language, Ta people uh, in northern Botswana, which is an endangered language. Very few people speak it, um, yet it's one of the, the most musical languages in the world. It has more sounds than any other language. It has, I believe it's 112 <laughs> sounds versus Italian that has 46. Um, and uh, it's, uh, you know, it so... We're, we're doing what we can, and, we're, and there's a follow-up record coming with Raymond Antrobus, who's one of the most uh, incredible young generation, newer generation uh, English language poets in the world. He happens to also be deaf, and he writes a lot about that, and, and I did a record with him last year, which I thought was really special. He has a very special voice, um, and uh, I think the new one in some ways might even be better. Where can people go to listen? Well, you know, these these releases are 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 in most of the places people now do listen, places like, you know, Spotify and Apple and Amazon, the the, the big companies and Bandcamp, you know, a little bit more indie. Um, but but they're there. They're there, they're there for for the finding and on YouTube as well. Um and, and uh hopefully people will be enriched by by some of those voices as well. Well, Fred, another wonderful find on your part, and congratulations, Ian, on the on this undertaking and your amazing body of work. We look forward to listening to this. Oh no, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time and for being here, and and uh, it's my pleasure. There is a new development for Posit Science, maker of the Brain HQ app, 
Joining us is CEO, Dr. Henry Monka. Hi, Henry. Hey, Fred. Nice to see you. And hi, Mary. Hi, Henry. You and Posit Science do such great work. And we've been collaborating with you for 20 years. So you have a new study to tell us about, and we can't wait to hear it. Well, we do. And, um, you know, of course, you know us at Posit Science. We make the brain training program called Brain HQ. And, you know, one thing that's been really wonderful about working in this field is there have been so many interesting uh, clinical trials and research studies that have come out over the years. And one of the most interesting has been a study that's been run out of Australia called the BBL study. And I think what makes this study really exciting to me is they're taking a broad view about brain health and what can they do to improve brain health to make all of our brains more dementia resistant. And so what they built was a multimodal program where people did a combination of brain HQ brain training, and they got dietary advice to try and eat better for their brain health. You've probably heard of the Mediterranean diet and the mind diet for brain health. So they got trained on that. And they also got advice about how to better integrate physical exercise into their life. So a three-pronged approach. And what's cool about that is I think that's what more and more researchers in the field of brain health and Alzheimer's disease are coming to, which is, hey, we need to think about dementia as a preventable disorder, just the way we think about diabetes as a preventable disorder. But it's probably going to take a bunch of different things working together to help keep our brain healthy and put off dementia. And so, yes, there's been some news from this very exciting study. You know, and one of the things I think, if I'm reading this correct, uh, that was in the study, was that they're saying a small amount of brain training can actually help to reduce dementia risk. Can you yeah. be more specific? What, what do they mean by that? That's exactly right. So in this study, they, um, you know, they randomized people into two groups. And both groups got a little bit of what you'd call educational material, almost like a, just a brochure. You know, Maybe you should exercise more. Maybe you should think about eating better. Maybe you should keep your brain busy. But then people in the treatment group um, got things that really helped them put that to work in the real world. And one of the things they got was complete access to Brain HQ over the course of this five or six month study. And what they found is that people did about 10 hours, 10.8 hours to be precise, of Brain HQ training over the course of the study. Now, on the one hand, that's not a lot of training, right? If you were to think about how much do you need to uh, walk in order to lose weight, you'd probably say more than 10.8 hours if you're going to have an impact on your physical health. Um, but they did 10.8 hours of Brain HQ training. And what's really exciting is that they used a standardized measure of dementia risk called the Anu Adri. And this is a questionnaire that assesses what are all the things you're doing in your life that might help your brain be more dementia resistant. And what they found was that on the, after just those 10.8 hours of brain training, they had a big significant change on the parts of the Anu Adri dementia resistance questionnaire related to cognitive engagement and dementia resistance, which means to say that just that 10 0.8 hours of training was enough to significantly shift this validated measure of dementia risk um, uh, as a result of doing this brain training. And so, you know, one of the reasons that's exciting is, uh, hey, we have hundreds of studies at this point that have been published in very carefully controlled academic clinical trial environments. And if you've ever been in a clinical trial, if you've been good enough to volunteer at a hospital or something like that, they take a lot of care of you in a clinical trial. You get a lot of personalized attention. They make you do what you're supposed to do. What was exciting, and those studies again and again and again have shown that brain HQ training helps people think faster and focus better and remember more. 
What's exciting about this new study out of Australia is it said that, hey, in a very real world, like, hey, take this home and do as much as you care to, uh, people did uh, enough hours of training to shift their dementia risk. Uh, and that's fantastic because what it means is, you know, one more piece of evidence that, hey, we're moving out of the, hey, this is a, a good science project and we can show it can work in these very careful academic environments and moving into a world where we say, hey, people can use this in a real world under very naturalistic settings. And hey, they're doing enough brain training to get benefit out of it. I, I like the way you're comparing brain exercise to physical exercise and also to put it in the same bucket where preventing diabetes, to, to give people a holistic way of thinking about. Yeah, uh, I think this is one of the things I've become you know, most excited about. I mean, Mary, you, we've known each other for quite some time and you and I have as well, Fred. And, and, um, and you know, we've of course built a wonderful brain training program and showed it works over and over again. But you know, where my head really is going into the next step, and I think I, with a lot of people in this field is, you know, I think historically we've thought about dementia as something that was either inevitable, maybe genetic, right? You know, if you had family members who got it, you were going to get it too. But either way, we sort of thought about it as, hey, when it gets you, it's going to get you. Um, uh, I'm actually in D.C. I'm speaking to you from Washington, D.C. right now. I'm visiting my mom. And, you know, someone amazingly, my mom, who gets wonderful medical treatment, when I asked her, hey, what does your doctor tell you about brain health? What does he tell you to do to reduce your risk of dementia? You know, she told me, well, you know, he said, well, worry about it when you get it. And of course, you know, Mary and Fred, you know, that's just completely ridiculous advice. And my mom gets great medical care, but that often is the standard of care. And what this study is telling us and, and where my head is and many other people's is, um, hey, we need to throw out that idea. You know, obviously there are genetic risk factors and all kinds of stuff like that. But this is not something that is preordained in your stars from the day that you were born. It's something that almost every aspect of how you live your life contributes to. And again, the diabetes field is probably 20 years ahead of the Alzheimer's field on that front. You know, if you wind back the clock and talk to people about type two diabetes in the eighties and nineties, it was sort of a mysterious disease. And if it got you, it was gonna get you. And if and once you had it, all we could do is try and help you live with it and mitigate some of the risks. And obviously that's how we think about Alzheimer's and dementia now, but where the diabetes field got to was, well, holy smokes, right? You can identify people who are at risk for diabetes and you can work with them on very real world practical behavior changes involving diet and exercise. And you can significantly change their risk of going on to diabetes. And now, dare I say it, there are scientists in the field of diabetes who say, hey, we can reverse type two diabetes, right? We can take a person who has this condition, we can get them in the right lifestyle. And after a period of time, they are no longer meet the diagnostic criteria for diabetes. Now, I'll go way out on a limb here because we're just talking among us friends, but you know, can you imagine a world where, okay, in the future, we are doing brain healthy things like brain training and diet and exercise and nutrition. We're getting better sleep. We somehow figure out how to lower all of our stress levels. We're maintaining great relationships with our friends and neighbors. And all of that is changing whatever is written in our stars and our genes and modifying our dementia risk. Um, to the point where, um, hey, we can protect against the onset of this dread disease. And again, I think this what this Australian study is telling us is, hey, not only is that possible, but in the real world, people can do enough of a, of a, of a brain healthy intervention like Brain HQ to meaningfully alter their risk factor. And that's 
honestly, that's a revolutionary thought. You know, we've been waiting in this field forever for a drug to ride on like a like a knight on a horse over a green hill and save us all. And, you know, we've had no new drugs forever. And I think, as you know, the new drugs that have come out, <clears throat> I guess it's great that something has finally worked, but they're not really life-changing for people who have this condition. And maybe the breakthrough we've been looking for is going to be more like this, about how to treat our brain like an organ that we can monitor and maintain the health of so that we significantly lower our risk of going on to dementia. You're sounding like a mutual friend of ours, Dr. Mike Royson. <laughs> and actually, there's a partnership between. Uh, That's exactly and right. We have been long friends and long admirers of the work that Mike Royson's been doing at the Cleveland Clinic around, um, hey, how do we just think about keeping the whole machinery of our body healthy top to bottom? And yeah, have a wonderful partnership with him. You know, he's launched his new book and his new app, Reboot Your uh, Reboot Your Age, and we're delighted to be uh, delighted to be a part of that and working with him on it. And tell us a, a bit before we let you go about the uh, about the app that people can subscribe to, Brain HQ app. How do they go about doing that? Yeah. So uh, the great thing about Brain HQ is anyone can sign up at no cost and it'll give you an exercise to do per day for free to see if you like it. Anyone can go to www.brainhq.com and register. It'll give you what's called the daily spark, an exercise a day to try out, see if you like it and see if it's for you. Um, and um, hey, easy to subscribe to. It's $8 a month for a full year subscription and unleashes 29 exercises and a personal trainer and progress tracking. And you can join, um, you know, the tremendous number of people that are out there taking care of their brain every day. And as we've seen from this new study, easy to fit into your life and easy to do enough of that it'll uh, have a real impact on your brain health. You know, Henry, earlier this month, I was a judge in an international competition looking at new businesses. Um, in the area of memory care and brain health. And it is a global movement of research. So it's exciting to see you partnering with this group in Australia. It's also exciting to see research infused into startup companies or to, you're more than a startup, you've been around for a while. But the way in which posit science innovates over time between your work with the NFL and Tom Brady and others, it's just market leading. So. Uh, yesterday, I was with my friends. We were with the former president of the college celebrating her 90th birthday. My wow. friends were 74, wow. and I was looking at the next 15 years. So I'm going to ask them to invite them to watch this episode because really it's thinking about the boomers at 77 into their 90s. Can they get engaged in this kind of preventative? solution. I think it's really important. Yeah. And, you know, um, the science is incredibly important for the reasons that you talk about, you know, particularly working in digital health like you do, you know, you have to build an app, but it's really important to show that it works, right? Those are both two kinds of the same points. But as you mentioned, you know, after that, we have almost a cultural change we need to make. And then there's so many smart people thinking about this cultural change in aging. You know, you mentioned Mike Royson, but there are so many other people as well working around it that, hey, we need to think about aging not as just, well, you know what, I guess I'm going to ride this car till it runs out of gas. <laughs> we need to think about it more as, um, hey, what a great time to be taking care of your health, you know, from your toe to your brain, so to speak, um, because, um, hey, uh, the science shows that you can do that and, you know, you're going to be living a better, happier, more wholesome life as a result of that. But that sense that we can take control of our destiny, I think, is such an important one because that's what the science shows us we can do. And now we need to have a culture that, that encourages us to do that. Right. We just, feature, we just featured a, a book on this too, Mary, not too long ago on, on dementia prevention with the doctors, right. Mitch and Emily Kleonsky. 
going going back to the luncheon, we were telling stories of that. And I remember being 17 and I was a model uh, and I read the magazine 17 and I thought that was the most important publication at the time. Well, then I got to college and my professor was a philosophy major. She introduced us to the world of ideas. And we were sort of saying there's time for a new magazine, you know, 75 now, what happens? But it's this kind of news that you can use where you can think differently, more holistic about your health and your cognitive fitness. And um, because we were joking the other day, we heard about the wisdom discount. And we oh. want to feel like we're in the game at 90, like my former professor, who's just so on top of her readings and her ideas. And yeah. this is a pathway to do that, I think. Yeah. That's exactly right. Well, Thank I didn't you. know you were a model at the age of 17, but it explains a lot about how you are always so well put together whenever <laughs> I come across you. <laughs> Thank you. That is fabulous. There's more at brainhq.com. That's where you can find more info about the app. Sign up as well. Congratulations again, Henry, on all of the innovations backed by science. And thanks for spending time with us. It's always a pleasure to come and talk to you both. Thank you for having me on.